Hello, I'm Peter Mayers. Welcome to Big Ideas on ABC Radio National and the final in the 2010 Boyer Lecture Series, The Republic of Learning. Over the past five weeks, Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, has surveyed the landscape of higher education in Australia today. In this last lecture, he attempts to look beyond the horizon to see what the future holds. The federal government has set ambitious targets for lifting the number of Australians with tertiary degrees in the next 15 years, targets Professor Davis enthusiastically supports. But achieving these goals means creating hundreds of thousands of new student places. Some of our major universities are already very large by world standards. So should they get even bigger? Should we create new universities that mirror our existing institutions? Or does the future look decidedly different, with greater variety in the size, style and specialisation of tertiary schools, and a wider range of funding models? This is the future that Professor Davis sees and largely welcomes, and I'll quiz him about that future later in the program. First, Professor Glyn Davis lays out his vision in his final Boyer Lecture, Becoming the Republic of Learning. Look at those stone gates, the passing parade of youth, the staff hurrying between classrooms. From the right distance, the university seems eternal, barely changing with the centuries. In many countries, including Australia, universities are among the oldest continually operating organisations, part of an international republic of learning stretching back over half a millennium. This is a remarkable feat. Very few institutions survive so long. In the Western world, the only surviving entities from 1520, in recognisable form with similar functions and unbroken histories, include the Catholic Church, the parliaments of the Isle of Man, of Iceland and of Great Britain, several Swiss cantons, the Bank of Siena and 70 universities. This longevity is made possible by the importance of their mission, teaching the next generation, and by a healthy capacity for adaptation. In Australia, those women once excluded from campus now make up a majority of students. Campuses once speaking only to locals now educate hundreds of thousands of students from Asia. A workforce once dependent on muscle now finds roles for 170,000 graduates every year. A nation that imported scientific knowledge now contributes in a significant way to the global expansion of learning. Australia's university system is one of our great achievements, a key to our continued prosperity. Throughout this series, we've examined our Republic of Learning, Developments in teaching, research, social equity and life on campus. The state of the Republic is strong, even if there remains much to be done in providing more universal access. But every institution can be better, stronger, more relevant. So in this final lecture, I want to ask whether we're taking full advantage of the potential benefits offered by higher learning. Donald Horn was being ironic when he called us the lucky country. Yet the phrase stuck in a nation benefiting from the economic miracle of a mining boom. We've enjoyed decades of continuous growth and our living standards have lifted remarkably. 
with the combination of hard work and the scientific, engineering and financial expertise provided by higher education, we have turned the red dust of the Pilbara into the steel, copper and energy that's building and powering cities across the globe. Will this economic luck last? Let's hope so, and in ways compatible with a fragile ecosystem. It's common to fret that an economy based on just one industry will always be vulnerable. Yet, over the past 20 years, we've invented another huge new sector in Australia, something to sit alongside mining as a fundamental pillar of prosperity. Higher education is our largest service export, amongst our largest employers. It provides the skill to turn prosperity generated by red dust into something else, a store of intellect and skills, of creative energy, that will power our nation in the years ahead. Higher education has attracted some of the most talented people from our region to study here, and about a third choose to stay in Australia as permanent residents. We are all the richer for their contribution. Turning promising material into extraordinary people is the practical chemistry higher education offers. Given the scale of the opportunity, it's time to think big. In 2009, the Australian Government responded to the Bradley Review of Higher Education by setting the nation a series of challenges. To ensure 40% of 25 to 34-year-olds have a bachelor's degree or higher by 2025. To make our higher education system more equitable. To keep standards high. Expanding access is an important goal and one likely to be achieved. Participation is already at 34% and growing strongly. But the number of new students involved requires some bold decisions. To take in an additional 360,000 or more students means we'll need a significant number of new universities around the nation. Up to 24 new institutions over the next 20 years, suggests one estimate from noted analyst Mike Gallagher. We can do this. Our higher education system has expanded significantly in recent decades and can do so again. The experience of the past gives us a strong base for further growth. But as another period of rapid expansion looms, now is the time to ask how best to imagine these new students and new universities. Growth provides an opportunity to enlarge the diversity of higher education in Australia. Today, Australia relies on one model to achieve its higher education goals, the Australian Public University. Shaped by funding policies and regulation, our public universities have much in common. They all aspire to be research universities, with research now written into the legal definition of a university. They all offer courses in a wide array of disciplines and degree levels from bachelor to PhD. They are all large, with an average of 27,000 students each, usually spread over several campuses. All have similar administrative structures with faculties, academic boards, governing councils or senates and vice-chancellors. This was not planned. On the contrary, at various times, policymakers have sought to encourage a far more varied range of institutions. What is now the University of New South Wales began in 1949 as the New South Wales University of Technology, intended to be a science and engineering institution. 
Monash too was designed to specialise in similar disciplines. But the moment was lost. Rapid expansion and an urgent need for graduates from all disciplines saw UNSW and Monash quickly become comprehensive institutions with course offerings and academic missions resembling closely the original universities in Sydney and Melbourne. From the 1960s, a new generation of universities began with the establishment of Macquarie, La Trobe, Newcastle, Flinders, Griffith, Wollongong and Murdoch. Once again, the original plans called for institutions that embraced interdisciplinary knowledge with innovative courses that complemented rather than repeated the offerings of existing universities. But it was not to last. Again, the pressure for rapid growth and a concern to capture students interested primarily in professional training saw all this generation of universities become comprehensive. Today they provide professional schools in medicine, business, law and engineering of very high quality and eerie familiarity. In the late 1980s, the federal government met continued pressure for university places by a massive process of consolidation. A range of once independent and distinctive teaching institutions, colleges of advanced education, institutes of technology and sundry specialist schools were remade as universities. This process of amalgamation heralded the age of the mega-university. Australia's universities remain much larger on average than counterparts in Britain, where universities average 15,000 students, or Japan, with just 4,000 students on average. Within the newly amalgamated universities, powerful forces of standardisation and uniformity set to work. Academics with a master's degree and a lifelong commitment to teaching found themselves no longer welcome. To secure research grants, the currency of academic prestige, universities now only employed scholars with a doctorate. As research became the basis of rankings, so Australian universities narrowed around this single mission. Amalgamation proved a way to expand places for students without increasing government outlays. The 1990s saw a steady decline in public funding per student. Class sizes increased to create economies of scale. Universities turned to international students in ever greater numbers to cover the widening gap between income and costs. The reforms of the late 1980s deserve credit for expanding dramatically the opportunities for young Australians to attend university but such growth was achieved at the price of sameness in what was labelled a unified national system. Regulation would enforce conformity. All universities would have a research mission. Indeed, universities would be funded to be alike so that the experience of attending Edith Cowan University's Dune de Lup campus in Perth should be instantly familiar to a student at any of the seven campuses of Charles Sturt University in regional New South Wales. Given this similarity, it's little wonder so few Australian students cross state borders to study. Wherever they go, the courses on offer will be much the same. Uniformity means consistency, and students can have confidence in the quality of their course wherever they study, but the cost is a lack of meaningful choice. Twenty years after the period of great amalgamation enforced a single model for an Australian university, there is a mood for change. 
This arises from universities themselves, keen to develop a distinct identity and respond to changing student expectations. Canberra too shows a new interest in diversity. The Bradley Review recommended less prescriptive regulation, more opportunity for higher education institutions to develop their own character. In response, the Commonwealth has announced major changes to the funding system. From 2012, universities can choose how many students to enrol, a decision that will create, overnight, tens of thousands of additional places for Australian students. Canberra will step back from direct regulation of universities, relying instead on an independent authority to ensure minimum standards and quality. It is a welcome development, one that encourages institutions to experiment more boldly with curriculum. Universities are moving quickly to broaden their education model, to develop courses that offer an expansive view of humanity and its environment. Such education aims to create citizens along with preparing students for the workforce. It makes clear that while universities transmit skills, they also give us a reason to ponder the purpose of life. The aim is to encourage rounded human beings who question and who understand. At the University of Melbourne, major change to undergraduate education began in 2008. 96 separate programs became just six undergraduate degrees, each marked by compulsory breadth components to ensure every Melbourne undergraduate studies subjects outside their choice of degree program. Science students can now explore music as part of their program and commerce students' languages. Melbourne aims, like other Australian universities, to encourage a distinctive kind of graduate, one with breadth as well as depth. Undergraduate study then leads to a wide array of graduate programs. At Melbourne, and from 2012 at the University of Western Australia, professional courses such as law, medicine, teaching and engineering will only be taught at graduate level. Students have time to explore their many interests before committing to intensive graduate training, taught with the rigour appropriate to master's level programs. This move dubbed the Melbourne model by the Age newspaper, offers an education aligned to European and North American practice. It's been supported by both sides of politics when in government, by funding Commonwealth-supported places in graduate courses. Other universities will make their own decisions about strategy. On campus, as in Canberra, policy has begun to favour diversity, a wider set of choices for Australian students. The important next step will be a review, due in 2011, to examine the funding rate for each course. At present, there's a strange double nature to our public universities. Regulation requires that Australian students be offered a strictly enforced uniformity with standardised pricing and largely similar products. These sit alongside an open market for international students and Australian postgraduates, who are free to choose their degree according to quality, reputation and cost, as they would any other serious investment in their future. Addressing this curious dual arrangement is the crucial next reform. Until the funding for each course reflects real costs, no university can afford to specialise. Take the study of law. 
an Australian undergraduate student in law attracts a Commonwealth subsidy of just $1,800 a year. The student pays a further 9000 But in many institutions, the real cost of delivering quality legal programs is many thousands of dollars a year more. The financial gap is filled by income from international and private full-fee paying students. This creates a serious risk. When international enrolments fall, so does international revenue. This creates a difficult choice for our public universities to reduce the quality of courses or to maintain quality but reduce the number of places available to Australian students. Underfunding in some disciplines, such as law, requires large enrolments in other subjects, such as business, to generate sufficient income to support the overall institution. The diversity agenda, therefore, relies on funding the real costs of a university education. There is a case for significant additional public investment and for thinking again about the private contribution. Funding the full cost of research is crucial also to establishing a more diverse higher education sector. Currently, funding for research only covers a part of the actual cost of research. The gap must be made up by cross-subsidising research from other funds. In particular, universities use income from teaching or allow existing infrastructure to degrade to instead support research programs. The more successful the research program of a university, the greater the cost felt by their teaching and buildings. To cope with rapid expansion, governments will likely look beyond the existing 37 public universities. Australia also has two private universities, Bond and Notre Dame, and 137 other institutions registered to offer higher education courses. These include theological colleges, professional bodies such as the Institute of Chartered Accountants, natural medicine colleges, and a variety of specialised training academies. A small number of TAFEs also offer undergraduate degrees. Yet taken together, these bodies account for only 6% of all higher education enrolments. The overwhelming majority of degree students, some 94%, are enrolled in our public universities. Hopefully, this reflects the high standing and prestige of public universities. But it's likely that cost is also a factor, since, with a handful of minor exceptions, direct subsidy of higher education is limited to public universities. The average subsidy across all disciplines in public universities is $11,000 per student per year. This gives public universities a major competitive advantage. This sharp difference between public and private contrasts with the more varied systems found elsewhere. In the United States, in India, in China, governments encourage higher education institutions to specialise by field or level of study. In the United States, a large private higher education sector adds greatly to the options on offer. Millions of students are enrolled in one of the more than 2,000 private higher education institutions, most focused on teaching rather than research. American students embrace this choice. Many choose to study interstate, at the campus that best reflects their particular interests. An aspiring novelist, for example, may prefer a small liberal arts college such as Wellesley. A potential astronomer may choose MIT 
an ambitious banker, a business program at Northwestern University. This choice does come at a price, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees to be paid up front or through a loan. Australians put a greater premium on egalitarian outcomes and many will feel the American system is purchased at too high a level of social inequality. Yet recent developments in the American market provide important indications of the way higher education is changing. Consider the rise of Phoenix University, one of America's for-profit institutions. Calling itself a university for working adults, Phoenix offers a range of vocationally focused associate, bachelor, master's and doctoral courses. These can be studied online and through 265 local learning centres. From a small college offering correspondence courses, Phoenix now enrols more than 440,000 students and employs 25,000 instructors. Phoenix has refined a business model that ruthlessly eliminates costs irrelevant to the outcomes its students seek. Phoenix academics are not paid to do research, but they do have to mark student papers within 48 hours of submission. Classes contain no more than 15 students. By renting space in office buildings and shopping centres, Phoenix avoids investment in expensive campus infrastructure. The sandstone, cloisters and gargoyles of a traditional university are nowhere to be found. And half of Phoenix offerings are associate degrees. These provide a way into higher education for students not qualified for or ready to commit to longer bachelor's degrees. To some, these qualities make Phoenix a poor imitation of a traditional university. But if you cannot spare four years out of work to spend on campus, and if you need a qualification to get a better job, Phoenix can give you higher education at a far cheaper price and with much greater convenience. Ready or not, it's a model coming to a country near you. The idea of education for profit sits uncomfortably with the ethos of Australian public universities. And it can be controversial in the United States too. A recent US Government Accountability Office audit identified fraudulent, deceptive or otherwise questionable marketing practices in the sector. Yet the rapid growth and large enrolments of the American for-profit institutions suggests we should think carefully about why they appeal to so many students. Perhaps it's because the American for-profit education industry provides a pathway for students who otherwise struggle. Not every public institution works to meet the needs of working adults. Similar institutions are gaining a foothold in Australia. The stock market-listed Navitas Group runs diploma-granting colleges that prepare students for university entry, offering small classes and close involvement with teachers. Navitas colleges are often situated on campus, so students get comfortable about eventually joining the university. If they complete their diploma courses with sufficient marks, Navitas students can enter the second year of a university course. We think of opening access as the special task of public education, yet public universities have not always proved well-matched to this challenge. Some have resolved the dilemma by establishing close working partnerships with Navitas or its competitors. Some have established their own feeder colleges. Other public universities 
talk of establishing community colleges on the American and British model, offering two-year associate degrees with articulation into further study. Closer links between universities and Australia's well-established network of TAFE institutes offer a further opportunity for greater diversity. Around a dozen TAFEs provide university-style courses, often with an exit point after the second year for those not keen to continue to a degree. The network of TAFE colleges, especially in regional areas, enables them to reach students who cannot travel to a university campus but may not wish to study online. For those attracted to distance study, Open Universities Australia, now affiliated with Seek Learning, offers access to online courses from 14 public universities, including a growing suite of master's level courses. As universities such as Melbourne and Western Australia move to a graduate school model, they may leave an opening for new undergraduate-only institutions in the tradition of America's liberal arts colleges. Australia currently only has one, Campion College in Western Sydney. We could do with more. Liberal arts colleges believe in a university as a place of scholarship and reflection free from the pressing imperatives of career choice for students. They remain close to the humanist aspirations of the first global scholar, Erasmus. Such colleges account for only a small percentage of total enrolments in the United States, but places are highly sought after and satisfaction rates from students tend to be very high. The attractions are obvious. Small residential campuses, the feeling of a community in which every face is recognisable, comfortable class sizes with teaching provided by professors not faced with the constant pressure to publish. A good example is Williams College in Massachusetts, where all students must take subjects across the three divisions of language and arts, social studies and science and mathematics. The idea is to create broadly educated graduates familiar with different ways of understanding the world well qualified to enrol in professional graduate programs such as law and medicine. There are no vocational courses offered. Alongside liberal arts colleges in the United States are hundreds of specialised institutions with most in health, technology, music and the arts, law and theology. Perhaps the most famous is the California Institute of Technology or Caltech, which specialises in engineering, science, maths and astronomy. Caltech has places for only 2,000 students, but remains one of America's most successful higher education institutes, with 31 of its staff or alumni winning Nobel Prizes. The American example of the small specialist institution is matched by the Indian Institutes of Management and Technology, by Chinese universities focused on engineering or aviation, by the Singapore Management University, or by Lingnang University, a small but vibrant liberal arts college in Hong Kong. With just 2,500 students, almost exclusively undergraduates, Lingnang has introduced a welcome diversity into Hong Kong's higher education system. Its senior academic staff include renowned professors, such as Australian Megan Morris, who spends time in Hong Kong with students keen for an education in the humanities, before considering graduate school or a career or professional options. Many Lingnang graduates choose a business career alongside those who work in the arts and media, 
a source of satisfaction for Lingnang staff, who see their mission as shaping well-educated and well-rounded individuals who will make a contribution in all fields. With relatively few universities, how will Australia provide more choice for students? In part, the answer lies in rethinking regulation and funding. Canberra can still treat all public institutions in an even-handed way while providing scope and encouragement for each university to find its own path, play to its own strengths, build distinctive expertise in specialist fields. In part, the path to diversity is to use the imminent expansion of the system to introduce new types of institutions. It will be hard to accommodate so many new students in existing universities. Why not create some new players, consciously different? Australian liberal arts colleges, specialist academies, community colleges and whatever entirely new organisations are made possible by a national broadband network and the ability to aggregate content from universities around the world. The answer involves more mobility for students and recognising that a new generation will want to move between institutions, classrooms and online courses, building their own study programs. And in part, diversity requires us to rethink the sharp public-private divide of our education world. This is already happening as TAFEs and private providers attract fee-paying degree students. But Canberra mandates maximum charges for Australian undergraduates, which limits competition on price between public institutions. And as Navitas demonstrates, it's possible to draw students into a private course that leads to public university study. Such close alliances between public and private will only grow as the nation strives to achieve its targets for participation in higher education. But to work effectively, we need to think again about the allocation of Commonwealth-supported places and the operation of HECS. Finally, we need to consider ways that gifted teachers can be part of a university system that is currently built around research. There are many universities that will remain utterly committed to their research mission and workforce, and so they should. But it must be possible to create opportunities for those scholars at their best in the classroom with students, teachers who keep up with the literature without themselves researching. We waste so much talent through our narrow definition of what it means to be a university. New forms of regulation will be required for each of these changes, but they're not conceptually difficult. Rather, the impediment is deep cultural assumptions about what it means to be a university. That most famous book on the subject, Cardinal Newman's classic, The Idea of a University, proclaimed a singular vision of higher education, not an idea, but the idea of a university. Like Newman, Australia has tolerated only one idea of what a university should be. In an era of mass education, a republic of learning needs to reimagine the prevailing archetype of the university, opening up to new types of institutions, new ways of thinking about higher education. This is not about titles. It matters little what a great education institute is called. Nobody in the United States confuses Phoenix University with Harvard. MIT is not called a university, 
but few miss its contribution to the world of ideas. Real difference is found not in labels, but in the issues at the heart of these lectures, teaching, research, equity and life on campus. Our Republic of Learning should encourage more dual-sector vocational and higher education institutions and more specialised universities, liberal arts schools and small colleges committed to their own subject area, their own vision of higher education. We cannot expect the public to fund every experiment. It is reasonable for government to specify what types of courses and students it will support. Governments are entitled to fund new students beginning their career at one rate and already established professionals at another. But as a nation, we have to meet the needs of all potential students in a way that is fair, equitable and affordable. There are important debates ahead about which disciplines need public support. Once decisions are made, they should apply equally to all students and all institutions. What is not funded by government must be funded privately through student fees and philanthropy. Australia has a superb record in lending students money to cover their fees while exempting students and graduates with low earnings from repayment. It's a model that can be extended to other modes of education and to providing reasonable living costs while studying. By expanding choice, by supporting students, we create the best possible opportunities for each Australian to access the education they value and to contribute to its cost later as they benefit from that qualification. To achieve diversity, we need to make the student fee and loan system flexible for all students so they can make their own decisions about how much to invest in their higher education. And we need to encourage the continued flow of international students to build the intellectual resources of this nation to ensure an Australia that faces outwards and finds its place in the region. The consequences of opening up the system are hard to predict. The trickle of foreign higher education institutions entering Australia, Laureate International, Study Group, Kaplan Professional, the Adelaide campuses of Carnegie Mellon and University College London, may become a steady stream of new arrivals if the funding system puts them on equal footing in appealing to students. But just as important is allowing older institutions to reinvent themselves. For the foreseeable future, public universities will educate the vast majority of Australian higher education students. Each must be encouraged to find the future that works best for them. Fortunately, universities are inventive institutions. When our public universities needed to find new sources of income, they invented an international student industry. That same spirit of innovation can be harnessed again. Government does not need to mandate diversity. By making regulation about standards not control, diversity will follow. Each public university determined to make its own way in the world will invent the future that makes sense for it and its communities. Where the government can most help build the Republic of Learning is where universities cannot act alone. Without a successful education revolution in early childhood, our university students will still reflect too narrow a slice of Australian society. We have, in our midst, an array of institutions committed to higher education, 
filled with great minds devoted to teaching, engagement and research. They serve the public and deserve support in return. Research in particular is expensive and risky. Promising ideas do not always turn out as hoped. Only public funding can sustain the research effort needed to widen our understanding of the world and to enrich lives. Our universities compete and connect, collaborate and vigorously contend, but each makes Australia a better place. Universities will shape the next generation and sustain our shared prosperity and our national conversation. Our future lies not just under our soil, but in our minds and in our hands. In this moment of knowledge, of technology, of skills and of the global movement of people, Australia needs to be a vigorous participant in the worldwide republic of learning. It's a historic moment. The promise of a door kicked open 500 years ago by Erasmus and the Republic of Letters finds a contemporary echo. While search engines, Wikipedia and Facebook offer information on demand, it requires higher education to make something of these endless data and their promise of sustained knowledge for every individual who seeks it, for every community, for humanity. Australia is part of this moment and it can help lead. Thanks to a lively and engaged higher education system, we embrace the ambition Erasmus set us. Ego mundi cevus esse cupio, to be citizens of the world, citizens of this republic of learning.